Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. Stay tuned for today's episode. Well, I am thrilled to have Mark Lipschultz on the podcast today. Mark is the co-chief executive officer of Blue Owl Capital, a member of the firm's executive committee and a member of the firm's board of directors. Mark also serves as co-chief investment officer for each of Blue Owl Credit Advisors. Previously, Mark co-founded Owl Rock Capital Partners, the predecessor firm to Blue Owl's credit platform. Prior to co-founding Owl Rock, Mark spent more than two decades at KKR, serving on the firm's management committee and as a global head of energy and infrastructure. Mark has a wide range of experience in alternative investments, including leadership roles in private credit, private equity, and infrastructure. Prior to Cake joining KKR, he was the Golden, with Goldman Sachs and Company, where he's focused on mergers and acquisitions and principal investment activities. Mark serves on the board of the Hess Corporation and is actively involved in a variety of nonprofit organizations, serving as a board member of the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, Michael J. Fox Foundation, Mount Sinai Health System, Riverside Country School, Stanford University Board of Trustees, and the 92nd Street Y. Lastly, Mark received an, an MBA with high distinction, Baker Scholar from Harvard Business School, and an AB with honors and distinction, Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford. All right, first question, who's smarter, mom or dad? Because obviously you got pretty good credentials. <laughs> well, first, Ron, thank you very much for... Uh... For having me it's really a privilege to be on with you uh it really is a treat uh well let's see let's start with who's smarter we'll start with you you're smarter in terms of with regard to family look i'm lucky to have been born into a family that certainly valued uh education and certainly gave me the opportunity you know to to obtain a great one and i i think whatever natural endowments i may or may not have you know most importantly i had parents and family and an opportunity well, it's probably smart. You, so. It's probably good that you didn't answer one mom or dad. So, um, <laughs> I guess what, first question I want to ask you, and I want to get into you've grown in a just a massive company in a, in a relatively short period of time, and I want to. There's a lot that I want to cover, um, but I always like to start out kind of where you started out. Can you tell me a little bit, like, how did you grow up? Because you, you've obviously become uber successful in by any metric, but were you? middle class how were you how were you, how were you grow up? how did you grow up thank you well i so i grew up in st paul minnesota and you know i i the geography i guess in this case i would think matters the 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 good fortune of where i grew up and i just mentioned that and i consider it obviously extraordinarily fortunate and a privilege to have a tight family and a supportive family but i lived in a place that valued you know family and work ethic was certainly i think a part of the the, the culture of the place uh, as were, you know, kind of this this idea of being kind to others and a lot of values that I, I try certainly to carry forward and I, I think have been important to to what we might call my my success. Um, I grew up uh, very comfortably. I mean, to, to be to be clear, I don't think I knew exactly what you know all the 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 world may have and what different levels of resources may look like. But I, I grew up in a very comfortable place. My father was a, a businessman. Uh, my, my mother was, was a stay-at-home mother. We spent a lot of time as a family together. And I grew up around, actually, my father uh, and my, my family, by the way, is from Minnesota for 
generations, which is helpful as a curiosity. Um, but in any case, my father owned a business, a local business doing packaging. So cardboard boxes and plastic bags. And so I did grow up in an environment where we talked about business. I did go when he would work on the weekends and I would go around the warehouse, you know, and look at the stacks of corrugated boxes. So I, so I, I grew up with this kind of this business environment and certainly therefore, you know, opportunities to have a great high school education, a great college education. Uh, and, and, you know, that said, I don't think I really knew what the world in New York looked like or the world in Hong Kong or London, you know, all good. I, I loved where I lived and it was a wonderful place to be. Now, you founded Owl Rock Capital, um, which has become an extraordinarily successful company. But can you provide uh, just kind of a brief background in, of your career leading up to, you don't just found Owl Rock. Give us the progression of your career. So uh, I went to, after I, I grew up all my, my formative years in, in Minnesota, and then I went to Stanford University, where I've, I've been able to remain very involved and a big, a big fan. Um, I then moved from there. I always had an interest in business and finance, you know, to this this point, growing up in a place where we used to kind of chat about business and used to talk about the local companies at the time. And so I always had an interest in investing in finance. You know, my I used to watch you know, Family Ties and Alex P. Keaton. You know, I, I thought that was more like a role model. One of know? my favorite, one of my favorite Great. characters. A great, great character, and then onwards back to the future. Another one, Michael J. Fox is fantastic, um, uh, fantastic. In, in any case, so my, Alex B. Keaton was, you know, probably more like my role model than the comedic foil. But uh, you know, I went to, I went away to, to school, and you know, I was the freshman that had the Wall Street Journal. Of course, when it was a physical product, like still delivered to my dorm room. And you know, I, again, I sure have, but I, I knew less than I. That, than I thought I knew for sure. Of course, over time, I realized I know less and less as you start to reach how much there is to know. Uh, but in any case, it was always like an area of interest. And then I was lucky enough to get a job at Goldman Sachs uh, coming out of Stanford. I moved to New York. And then I've lived in New York since so 1991. I've lived in New York and been in the finance, ultimately really the investment business since that time. Uh, and that's now been 30 Coming up on 32 plus years, other than a couple of years away at, at Harvard Business School, I've I've lived and worked here. A quick question before I go on to the next next step: um, You're on the uh, the board of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and you mentioned Alex P. Keaton, who was played by Michael J. Fox. Uh, any relation? I mean, did did how did you get involved in that organization? Yeah, sort of an interesting, I suppose, you know, arc arc of time in life. Uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, as I'm, I'm sure most are aware, has done extraordinary work uh, around finding a cure for Parkinson's, and it's a horrendous disease. Uh, I got involved with the foundation, uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, back in the 2000s. Uh, you know, Michael and following, I think, a few other really early pioneers in developing new models around embracing kind of re return on investment approach to research and philanthropy. And so we got connected and I was able to join that that board and have been on it for a very long time and admire the work they do. It's obviously a long ways to go, but incredible, incredible commitment of resources, time, and certainly progress, even if too slow. Now you started, you, you know, you, you were at KKR for close to 20 years. 
Um, so Henry Kravis was your first boss. Michael Milken was my first boss. So our worlds kind of uh, did collide a little bit. Um, question for you is, you've been in it so long because you know private equity is kind of relative basis, a relatively new industry. How would you say the private equity landscape has evolved over the years? It, it'll be fascinating to hear from somebody who comes from a firm such as KKR. It's a great question. And, and I, it's something I think about a lot because it really is, this is when I think about the arc of my career and we'll, I'm sure, touch different places along this timeline. But I certainly have a belief that the right place at the right time counts for a lot. I have a belief that certainly being you know, mentored by, partnered with the right people counts for a lot. Both of those were true for my time at KKR. I joined KKR in 1995. And in 1995, there we, we had 20 total professionals, front, mid, and back office together at KKR. I, I still use the word we, they, but I, I feel a closeness for sure. Um, and so 20 total professionals. And the word private equity didn't exist. Um, really, the word alternatives didn't exist. We did LBOs. And there were two firms of any scale in the world that did LBOs at that time. There was KKR and Forced and Little. And then there were startups like TPG. There were startups like you know, Blackstone, who came really with a specialized M&A restructuring business and were just getting into the buyout business. It's, it's almost hard to imagine, given the way those businesses have grown and, and thrived and prospered. But there were two firms, and it was... You know, I guess considered to a degree like a black magic, like how do these things get done? And I joined up and you you made reference to, you know, from the point of view of my career, one of the truly most important people for sure, Henry Kravis, who's an extraordinary human being first and foremost, but of course a business genius and along with George Roberts, really the creators, pioneers of the industry. So at that time, you know, there, there was a small group of us and we would, Find, we all were generalists and we would find companies. And really the art of it was ultimately the financial structuring and incentives, the early idea of aligning kind of owner manager incentives. And from that place where there were two firms and remember the KKR mega fund of that time was $3 billion, $3 billion, <laughs> right? I mean, today I don't, you know, I wouldn't be in the top how many hundreds of funds. Right. And, and then fast forward, and maybe it's not so fast, but in a way for all of us, you know, life is a blink. Uh, you know, look back now to 1995 and look where we are now with this industry called alternatives. Multi-trillion dollar industry, obviously. Private equity now branded private equity. I remember that change, by the way, in brand from when we used to be LBOs. And we said, well, people don't like that word leverage, so we should change that. I mean, I remember that conversation. And yeah. so, you know, the, the evolution now to this world where private equity is such a powerful, significant force for capital markets and kind of corporate evolution and development, it, not just in the U.S., now globally. I mean, it's kind of mind-bending, actually. And again, right place, right time. I mean, that's one heck of a place to have a front row seat. Now, after KKR, you founded Alrock, And Alrock is probably, certainly in my opinion, the top firm in, in private credit, private capital. So let me ask you this. What growth tailwinds allowed Alrock to become a leading private capital solution provider and eventually evolve into Blue Owl, which is a, currently about $150 billion company? So Alrock, 
I think the, the same themes, the echoes will recur in the way I, I think about Owl Rock, which is it was in, in, in part about, look, of course you have to have some, some right ideas. You have to have a market need to solve and a distinctive way of solving it like any business. But then tailwinds, which I just referred to, and the right partners, mentors, all of that's going to collide here, I think, in, in the way Owl Rock came together. To be very specific to your question, with regard to Tailwinds and, and Owl Rock, you know, we saw an opportunity. Doug Ostrover, who was at the time at Blackstone, having started GSO, and Craig Packer, who ran Leverage Finance and Goldman Sachs, all of us had been involved for our careers in this thing called Leverage Finance, in these private you know, capital markets or, or liquid capital, public capital markets. And we collectively, for our different places, saw an opportunity to take this in essence, map this model we just talked about, private equity, this evolution from a boutique industry into a really a Goliath global complex. We thought there was an analogous opportunity to do, and kind of put simply, what had been done in private equity to do the same thing in private credit. So private equity had evolved to the point where in and of itself, it was a gigantic multi-trillion dollar industry. And we said, well, then there must be an analogous opportunity to finance that business and to do it with the same tools that they themselves deploy, which is a long-term view, an aligned view, a capital pool that is long dated and can be matched to the opportunity set. We really thought we could build something special. And then the tailwinds that came for sure were, look, we said, we're gonna take that model and our ambition and it has happened, uh, but at the time it was, it was probably a pretty, pretty largely stated ambition was to make the private lenders the lender of first choice as opposed to the lender of last resort. And I think that was probably the, the, the key pivot. And then the tailwinds blew. And the tailwinds certainly were, of course, we had to have a value proposition that worked. And I think we do have a very good value proposition. But ultimately, you had private equity continue to grow dramatically. And then you had a lot of disruptions to the marketplace, to the traditional public marketplace, where we found out that these deep public markets, which are critical to the U.S. economy and are distinctive in the U.S., also, though, have become their own kind of deeply volatile places that can be open and closed in an instant. And that the durability of private solutions, private debt in our case, proved to be incredibly powerful for fueling private equity and, frankly, for helping support the economy to a degree, being an available capital source when other capital was not available. So how is Blue Owl positioned today um, within the private market ecosystem? How would you just describe that? So Blue Owl is a specialized alternative asset manager. And what I mean by that is we're not a single product company. We have a lane and this, this compass in going all directions around the world. There's firms that go all directions. We point north. And in our northbound lane at Blue Owl is defined by really two key tenets, two strands of our DNA. One strand is producing a series of products, all related in this way. We produce products that are focused on principal preservation, protection, safety, security through times of uncertainty. And I mean this within the world of alternatives and in a world of risk-bearing assets. But where principal preservation and risk management are really front of mind in every case. And then we produce, our aim is to produce really good to outstanding returns for that level of moderated risk. And we often do that in the form of generating current income with inflation protection. So there's a common thread across our product suite. If you think about Blue Owl, 
I think the, the way to kind of define this is these are products that you're going to be able to feel really safe with your principal, again, in this world that we live in, and you're going to be able to count on, expect, in reasonable cases, a really good result, and that's going to serve an important part of your portfolio. It may be through our real estate strategy, it might be through our GP strategic capital strategy, or through our legacy direct uh, lending strategy. All those are bound together by that common sense of principal preservation, predictability, and generally returns to current income. The other thread of what we serve is, is sort of who uses that capital. So that's what we produce for the investor, which arguably is the most important thing we do. How do we do that? We do that by providing bespoke capital, private capital solutions, primarily to the private equity industry itself, the alternatives industry. So we talked about this new multi-trillion dollar industry. And if I flip my metaphors from that compass direction for a minute, you know, we, we always talk about being the, the picks and shovels to the gold miners. They're the gold miners, and many of them do a wonderful job of mining gold out of them, their hills. We provide the picks and shovels across the board. And that's really our mission. Now, we do it for family companies. We do it for big public companies at times, too. But they're always bespoke, long-dated, private capital solutions for those participants in the market. Now, let's, let's go out five to ten years. What role are private markets investments going to play in portfolios? I think they will continue to play a bigger role. I appreciate probably very few things are linear, but what I think we can observe from both historic results, recognizing always the you know past performance, not a guarantee of future results, but, but, but the thing about private capital markets since the day I've been involved with them and before um, is this, they have worked. They've worked to deliver outsized returns for the risk to the investors. That doesn't mean every manager works. It doesn't mean every product works. But the asset class has undeniably worked, and it works for a good reason, which is within, and I'll ultimately bring it back you know, to, to our products, but it really would be common to any private capital solution, I think, for the most part, which is by taking a more tailored approach and by being able to take a longer view and by having investors that are willing to trade some amount of liquidity for enhanced returns, it works. And so from that battle with Harkin back to that 1995 time when I joined the industry, really the alternatives, again, they weren't called that, but LBOs or it's it's you know other adjacent products were these boutique products used by a handful of institutions. Some were very advanced. The state of Washington, the state of Oregon were already kind of early adopters. Many institutions didn't have any of it. Certainly it wasn't much present with family offices or even a term of art that probably didn't collectively much use. And so in a way, you kind of look back then and you probably had your average institutional portfolio that had mid single digit percentage of their portfolio in now to be called alternatives. Fast forward to today and your average institutional portfolio is 20 plus percent, depending on maybe endowments might go as high as 40, uh, but 20 plus percent for your typical institution in alternatives. Well, the age of the individual investor has arrived too. And this has been a big part of the Blue Owl strategy has been democratizing access. And I don't mean that to sound overly highbrow. I, I, I think it is something important about delivering an opportunity to a broader audience, but, but it's also, a, of course, it's a good business practice. We think that's a really wonderful addressable market. And so the, the, the next leg, along with the continued growth of institutional capital and adoption for those who haven't perhaps fully adopted it, 
uh, and new strategies that bring new capabilities, like our strategy of Blue Owl being a really low volatility direct lending strategy is pretty new to a lot of people. So all of that will combine to create opportunity for alternative investment managers, but also the individual investor who today is in that mid single digit range, probably on average, and that's for a, a high net worth investor, not fully retail. And subject to the right tailoring of the products, there is a tremendous mutual opportunity to do provide to individuals and allow individuals to participate and benefit from the very same benefits institutions have had access to for the last couple of decades. So I think all that combines to look, it works. I believe it will continue to work. It being alternatives as part of a portfolio and the individual investor world and institutional world both have a need. This doesn't solve every problem, but it meets a lot of needs as part of a portfolio. You mentioned family offices, which is the world that I kind of play in. Um, you recently started a family office. Um, why? So, of course, it's a world that that ultimately you know better than I, but I would say sitting where I have had the benefit of sitting, both at KKR and now at, at Blue Owl, you know, I've seen the evolution of the sophistication and capabilities that come with having you know, people like you guiding people investing in their portfolios, again, individuals, families, the office as the name connotes. So I guess practicing what I what I preach, having seen what institutions did and been fortunate enough to be able to participate because I was a professional in that industry, but, but through my particular lens, you know, I, I came to really recognize because, because these family offices were clients of, of mine, so to speak, I realized there was such an advantage to having that kind of capability and being able to invest like an institution, bring the sophistication that an institution brings, bring the access that an institution brings, and ultimately be able to build portfolios that are well considered. I will tell you, and I, I bet this is not uncommon, I spent all day, every day thinking about my clients' money and about how to make money for them and do a terrible job managing my own because I don't put any time into it because I've got a day and a night job and it's called Blue Owl. And so that's where my time and energy goes. That's where my fiduciary duty lies. And so, you know, I do kind of random acts almost to a degree or certainly not well-considered acts. And that's where having a family office, whether dedicated, outsourced or otherwise, I, I think is so powerful because it's going to bring that same focus that I try to bring to Blue Owl products to my investments. And, and that's really the origin story. Now, one of the interesting things with family offices, I mean, when you started your career, which is right around when I started my career, private equity disrupted the public markets. It was it was a better model, 2% covered the overhead, 20% I make money if you make money. So, and, and, it, and it just exploded. Um, but all family offices are different. So question for you is, um, you know, there's $10 trillion in capital in family offices. You've got $84.4 trillion that's coming downstream from the baby boomers to the next gen. So that's the largest transfer of wealth in history. In your opinion, because you've been through it with the private equity world, what inning are we in in the evolution of family offices? I think we're very early. I think what we have seen is probably analogous to this private equity world, early adoption, by a combination of either the very largest participants, right? People that have very big pools of capital, i.e. the wealthiest and largest families you know, in the world. And then just early adopters, people that tend to say, hey, where are things going? Do I want to be early or do I want to kind of let, let the model evolve itself a little bit? And I think we're probably exiting that 
pure early adopter phase into the, listen, back to this point, we know it works. We know that a family office done right works. It delivers value, risk-adjusted returns, net of all costs, it works. Just like my statement about private equity or frankly about alternatives writ large. And I think we're probably in that 90s vintage. It's a small subset. People that have it think it's fantastic and realize it for what it is. And we're just now entering that point of awareness where people are saying, hey, wait a minute. If that works for you know, pick your globally renowned family, and now there's a version that could be accessible for me, gosh, that seems like a pretty good idea. So I feel to me like we're just like just exiting the earliest innings and entering probably will be considered the sweet spot. We're going to get the most value out of, and I turn the question to you if I could, frankly, Ron, it feels like we're the time where the most value can be achieved by people, you know, again, in whatever form it is, developing a family office capability relationship, because there's going to be a lot of juice still to get, but you don't have to be, you know, such an early pioneer that you have to, you know, make all the mistakes or have such vast resources that it hasn't been done before. You can follow the template now. Yeah, I, I see, we put together a family office initiative conference at Stanford, and one of the things I noticed that I saw is that in general, today family offices are very fragmented, very siloed, and very efficient. And I keynoted a speech at Stanford, and I had five billion dollar families up there. And I said, what's the family office? And I literally got five completely different answers. And nobody was wrong or nobody was right, but I think that's kind of where we are in the evolution of it. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about with family offices has to do with philanthropy. So the last two guests that I had on, I had David Rubenstein, who's extraordinarily philanthropic, and Tony Pritzker, who's extraordinarily philanthropic. Um, one of the themes that I've had and every single guest that I've had, you included, I would look at you as a good person who happens to be very successful and not the other way around. Just like I'd look at that way with Tony Pritzker, just the way I'd look at that way with David Rubenstein. Um, what gave you the philanthropic desire to make such a difference? Well, first of all, thank you. I, I certainly aspire to be a good person and successful uh, to your point, not the other way around. I wouldn't want the other way around. Um, so, so thank you for 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 that frame of reference. Thanks also for even mentioning me in the same breath as those legends in philanthropy and business. So I will, I will quickly note the distinction between those legends of of both and myself. Um, with that said, I have certainly viewed philanthropy, community engagement, and service as a really important part of my life from early on. And I look, I had Henry Kravis, we mentioned this before, as a role model, who's another you know, legend of philanthropy, George Roberts, another legend of philanthropy and of, of dedication to the community. And so I was fortunate to be able to watch and learn. And something that I, the way I, I have thought about philanthropy, which I but to be clear, this is, this is something very specific. I heard Henry Kravis say that really stuck with me. You know, a lot of times, and I think there's some truth to this notion that we all say, oh, well, you know, we've been very fortunate, successful, and so we have a, an obligation to give back. And, and I think there's definitely some truth to that statement of itself in some sort of kind of moral framework. But at the same time, the way Henry said it, I actually think of it a different way. I think that having the success and resources, you know, means actually I have the opportunity to give back like it's not a 
it's not I have to quote give back. I actually kind of think about it as the opportunity to give, and it's it's great because you you think about all the challenges, and again, all the good fortune I've had, and it's a lot, and it comes from back to that origin we talked about with things like family and education and right place, right time, and mentors. And to be able to then take those resources and have impact on the community is frankly very personally rewarding. Now, I think it's it's, it's spiritually rewarding, so to speak, too. So I, mean, I, hope, that, I hope there's a higher order benefit to it for, for, for all. And of course, it's, it's wonderful to be able to help people. But also, like, I enjoy it. I really think I'm lucky to be able to be involved with these incredible organizations. You mentioned Michael J. Fox Foundation. I mean, what they are doing, what the scientists involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation are doing, what the researchers at Stanford University, where I'm very involved, are, are doing, I mean, they're making a difference. Those are smart people. Those are people that are committing their lives to something that really echoes into the future. You know, I, yeah, I've been successful. That's very fortunate. But be able to support what they do, well, that will matter. I mean, that's, the, the president of, of Stanford, Mark Tessier-Levine, talks about the purposeful university. And I think that's exactly right. Or maybe it's the purposeful life in general. Maybe it's a purposeful organization. But the purposeful university, this idea of how do you project these resources or use the resources to project solutions to big problems. So I'm a small part of those big machines. But I feel lucky to be a part of those things and have been, you know, thankfully for a long time. But I do think also, you know, you raise a point because I know how well the Michael J. Fox organization has done. My first boss was Michael Milken. My dad passed away from prostate cancer at 57. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I know firsthand when Milken developed prostate cancer, he didn't just throw $100 million to the American Cancer Society. He built it probably like you or I would have built it like a VC fund, right? He put 250,000 here, 2 million here, 3 million. And because of him, you and I and all the male listeners will die with, but not of prostate cancer if we live long, live long enough. And you look at what like a guy like Gates did for vaccines. You could argue he did more than the U.S. government. How can you take? Um, I, I don't think family offices are going to solve. It's not a panacea. They're not going to solve all the world's problems, but I think they can solve many of them because they take the entrepreneurial mindset. So, can you walk take take a minute and talk to me about how can you take it uh, an entrepreneur? apply the skills that they use to grow a Blue Owl, Drexel Burnham, KKR, whatever, but use that, you can't grow a, use, grow a philanthropy exactly like a business, but you can grow it more business-like. Do you see parallels in that? I really do, and I, I, I love the question, the way you frame that, Ron. It's, it's really interesting and provocative because I, I think the idea that family offices can play a critical role in addressing big problems in directing philanthropy in a more, let's call it efficient, I think effective is probably the, the, the right word, really. What we're trying to do is how do you get results? And again, Michael J. Fox is a study in this, right? All about measuring impact. There's only one goal, cure Parkinson's. That's it. That's it. <laughs> the idea is to go out of business, get that done and call it a day. Um, so I, I think of it this way. I think there's an opportunity to marry Great institutions, and I institutions are very out of vogue right now. It's very, there's a lot of skepticism about institutions, but institutions done right play a monumentally important role in society. And, you know, maybe it's the baby in the bathwater, maybe, you know, it's the zeitgeist of the moment, but the truth is there are great institutions. You know, governments have critical roles. Universities have critical roles. 
Um, you know, hospitals have critical roles. And I think the marriage of the, of the convening capability, the power of those kinds of institutions, let me, like, let me take Stanford, the collection of brain power and commitment and time that has been invested over the last 132 years building a institution of, of a purpose, uh, now to use the current that current frame of reference term, um, you know, is incredibly powerful. And I think marrying with a family office, philanthropy in general, two thoughts about the institutional marriage. One is, yes, it, it is the is the family office can get access to ex extraordinary capabilities. And I would sort of people we often use the term don't give to Stanford, give through Stanford. And I think you could phrase that amongst you know th this is not parochial to any particular institution, but I think if we all think about giving through different organizations, that's where by a family office partnering with an institution, you can say, I want to impact the world through this platform. And the beauty of the right institutional platforms is that they've already invested all the time and money to get to point, you know, we're trying to get to Z from A and they've already gotten to M. I'd rather invest money trying to get from M to N to O to P than to say, oh, I want to go back to B and try to get to C. So, you know, the, the beauty of the right institution is it's already sitting there at, at the cutting edge. And by marrying both the resources of a family office, but then, as you said, I think some of the discipline, the measures, the business approach of, okay, how do we know if we're making progress on getting from M to N, from N to O? Like, I think in a way what you're describing with credible people like Gates and Milken is they did bring that mindset of how do we measure that we're actually making headway, not, you know, in a way, not just confusing. I always say this in all aspects, of at least my life, not confusing in effort with results. You know, we go in circles for a long time and may be necessary sometimes, but that's not to be confused with actually making forward progress. And then Mark, I, I could talk to you for hours and yeah, obviously you've led a very fascinating and what I, what I would say is a well-lived life. Um, two questions, two last questions. One, I asked everybody, um, and this is a, a pillar of, for, for me personally, and I'm curious on, on your thoughts. With all the success you've had, what are you most grateful for? I am decidedly most grateful for the you know, lo the love I have with my family, my children, and my wife, uh, and the care and and thought we you know, give to each other. So I, I, I'm most blessed to have that kind of family and support system. I'm, you know. Next, blessed to have incredible opportunities to succeed and therefore to have landed in some of the right places to succeed. And you know, very much further on my list to get to things that I you know think are sort of the tangible things I you know I do or touch or see. It's it's really those intangibles which I'll put in the category of you know some level of those those blessings, the blessing of family and friends and opportunity. Yeah, I, I used to think that happy people were grateful, but as I've gotten a little bit older, I realize grateful people are happy. So that's one of the reasons that, that I asked that. Last question, and this is a bit of a disconnect. With your background, um, you you know, you went to Stanford, you went to Harvard, you went to KKR, you founded Blue Owl, you you you're you're basically you're running a hundred fifty billion dollar company. You've got that on one hand, and you're a sneakerhead on the other. <laughs> how did how, 
connect connect those dots. <laughs> yes, I I do love uh, I do love sneakers and collect sneakers. Um, I'm not sure I can genuinely connect the dots, other than perhaps to say that what I do appreciate about the sneaker designers and the artists is you know it is it it is this constant. Listen, the sneaker has been around forever, just like investing has been around forever. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a new lens. There isn't someone who's got a twist. There isn't someone, you know, the new form, the new shape, the new approach. And, you know, people have been doing this. It's like this marriage of, of kind of temporary society with fashion, with art. But like in the study of sneakers, you actually can kind of see the evolution of our community around us. And so I, I, I guess what I like about it is it's the most mundane of objects that keeps getting reinvented and has been reinvented so many times then that doesn't make it old or uninteresting. In fact, I think it makes it quite good. So maybe the analog is investing that too. People have been doing it forever and you know we'll be doing it forever. That doesn't mean there aren't new and better ways to do it. So okay. So are you are you you do you go to any of these conferences with 20 somethings and you're that guy? Well here's the question. That guy might be in their mind, who's that <laughs> old guy? <laughs> so for me it also is probably some aspiration to remain you know young and engaged but yeah I, I think I am probably atypical as a sneaker collector but by the way even there too you got to know your place now listen I like it I know sneakers but boy there are people that know a lot more than I do and they're a lot younger than I am just like there are people in Blue Owl that know a lot more than I do and younger than I am I I guess the other part I'd add to your point about gratitude and I I do feel deeply grateful so I'm glad you mentioned the term because it probably the word I think about the most. And then Wall Street, you know, if, if I could just go on this brief riff, it, but probably the thing that I find most off-putting about Wall Street over the last time I've been for 30 years is too many people who are too taken with their own success and are so fascinated by themselves and by what they have done and give so little and inadequate weight how much bears on just what happened around them. You know, when you have a bull market, a lot of things tend to work. On the other hand, if you run into the you know the teeth of a saw, a lot of things tend not to work. And so gratitude, you know, is one. And I think maybe the other, and I'm not trying to attribute the adjective to myself, but I think a lot of due humility for all of us is quite important, you know, which is there's a lot of awfully capable, smart, hardworking people uh, in every walk of life, every corner of life. And boy, do I have a lot of respect for a lot of respect for all of them. Well, this has been terrific. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of respect for you and I'm glad you're, you know, you're in my world. So thank you for the, for the time for this and congratulations on the success you've had thus far. Really kind of you. And thanks for the time. It was a wonderful conversation. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for tuning into Family Office World for today's show. Please make sure to subscribe on iTunes at your favorite podcast platform. I'll see you on the next episode. Family offices have approximately 10 trillion in assets, with another 65 trillion being transferred from baby boomers to the next generation in the next 15 years. This is the largest transfer of wealth in history. Family offices will soon control more money than the entire private equity and venture capital industries combined. The family office world is gonna disrupt the way in which funds are raised. The world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. If you look at my generation versus my children's, there's been a bigger change, in my opinion, than any generation, including the Industrial Revolution. We are only in the second inning. 
in the evolution of family offices. Every high-end service provider is trying to break into the lucrative family office market, mostly with limited success. Let Ron Diamond, one of the industry's most sought-after advisors, show you how he and his team have been able to navigate the family office landscape while developing meaningful relationships. I was giving a lecture, a keynote at Stanford about two years ago, and I had five billion dollar families on the stage. And I asked each one of them, I said, what's a family office and why did you create it? And I had five completely different answers. And nobody was wrong or nobody was right. But that's kind of where this industry is. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation. 10 make it to the third and five make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. Here's what we need to do. We need to come together as a community and share best practices. Representing over 100 family offices, from 250 million to 30 billion, Diamond Wealth has curated a community of family offices to collaborate and share best practices. We are now ready to share that thought leadership with service providers everywhere. We are at a tipping point, and there is no better guide into the world of family offices than Diamond Wealth.